Welcome to the Heroes of Reality Podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Have you ever felt like your mind had a mind of its own, like it was addicted to things and you had no control of yourself? Well, in this podcast, you're going to learn about Christy Cosper. She is the owner and founder of Sano Counseling Centers, a mental health facility that works with an array of psychological problems. With over 15 years of experience in clinical psychotherapy, Christy Cosper has poured her expertise and personal discoveries into co-writing a book designed for healing and growth from addictive behaviors. Transforming the Addictive Mind book contains a variety of voices who have treated and struggled through addiction. The exercises, meditative activities, and narratives are written simply enough to follow while having the elements needed to foster honesty, compassion, gentleness with oneself, and the relationship to others. So without any further delay, I'd like to welcome my friend, Christy. Hi there. Hi, Dylan. Hey. I'm so excited to have you on. I know we've been trying to do this for a while. Yes. And I'm I'm ex- I am absolutely excited to talk with you about all things of the mind, mental wellness therapy, uh, all of the crazy adventures you've gone on as well, and uh, anything else that we get into. So um, great. Cheers. Uh, I know you had a special request to bring alcohol into this session, so I have my glass <laughs> of wine here as well with you. On a happy Saturday, as we're doing yes, this. Yes, happy Saturday. I'll, I'll, you know, I love that. Um, I'll, I'll have to make my my cocktail. Um, it wasn't necessarily a request to have the booze, but sometimes oh. a little liquid courage because you know, <laughs> here, here I am on a podcast, Heroes of Reality, and 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 sometimes it's, feel like feel like it, it's a scam for me to to consider. You feel like a fraud. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, imposter syndrome is huge. And um, I see it a lot with my clients, and so getting through that is is a big deal. But you know, they say that when you when you deconstruct imposter syndrome, you deconstruct it, and what lies underneath it is perfectionism, and then mm. what lies underneath perfectionism is shame. And mm. so that's something that's kind of an, an ongoing struggle. I think some of us deal with this some more than others. I know I definitely have it. So. Um, and the shame comes from self-judgment. Is that what it comes from? Is the I'm not good enough or sure. other people will think? Sometimes it's there. Um, yeah. It's hard to know where it exactly comes from. Sometimes it comes from our childhood. You know, if we're not perfect, then there's hell to pay. I know some people have that experience. So everyone's a little different. But I'll I'll um, I'll, I'll show you my little travel martini set. If you yeah, want. pull it out. My and I'll talk about this. this As you... As you pull up the travel martini set and you're getting things ready. Oh, look at, oh. So this is, so my friend Rosemary makes these and she finds vintage 19, like 60s, this one was 1960s, uh, travel kits and she puts stuff in here. Whoa, like falling apart here. Um, I'm not gonna show you inside because I gotta keep some mystery, but I wanted to say, I love that photo of you in the beginning, on your, um, of the beginning oh. of the podcast. <laughs> it's that, so good I like, and then i gave you the one that uh you're using the one that i gave you mm-hmm. yeah yeah which, I, is the, which is the very um chic photo because uh i paid for that so i might as well use it uh, yeah i think <laughs> i paid for that photo as well i mean there's sometimes you get these good photos that you can hold on to forever nice nice yeah and what's really funny is like we were talking about this doing this podcast. You know, you're pulling up the drinks and you're talking about being uncomfortable. Like, oh, I feel like I'm a fraud. I feel like I'm not 
right. I don't know what I'm doing. And what's so funny to me, because as we we're talking about it, it's like, like you run a multi-location counseling center. Mm -hmm. You run like more than I think a dozen therapists that you that are underneath you that you run through your programs. Mm -hmm. And then as we're talking about things, I asked you, where's your bio? And you're like, oh, you can get it on the back of my book, Transforming the Addictive Mind, and you can get that on Amazon. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean fraud? Like, what do you mean? It's it's we're so harsh on ourselves, you yeah. know. It's it's a really interesting thing to see as we're going through this because you have helped and treated and you do it as a profession and and it's something that you years can you believe that i cannot believe that. that's I incredible I, I always make the joke that i'm not um i'm not a spring chicken anymore i'm a fall chicken and so <laughs> <laughs> like I, I finally it's become that i've come to that age i'm like wait a minute how long have i been doing this yeah so um i started doing therapy when i was 25 years old which is pretty young wow um, for, a, for someone, you know, when I think back on my 25 year old self, and even when you think about your 25 year old self, you're like, oh my goodness, how far we've come, right? But um, it's it's kind of interesting thinking how, how long it's been and how much I've learned and how much I'm continuing to learn and how much I'm continuing to grow. Mm -hmm. I don't think the journey has ended for me quite yet. It never ends. I don't think, I mean, even, even when you're, you know, 84 or whatever the age might be going on, I mean, as long as you have purpose and meaning and you can find a reason to, to keep going with all that stuff. Right. And, you know, that's, I think people die when the purpose dies, when you feel like, when the, and that could, that could be at the age of 15, 25, 35, whatever. So as long as you can create your own meaning, which is crazy because like in life, we just create our own meanings. We're constantly going, this is what this means. And this is true. This is real. Right. This is a hundred percent a thing. And it's not, it's just, we're just we're just constructing our own narratives, which is which is I'm sure you could speak to quite a bit um, in in actual narrative creation. It, right. How did you how did you get started in the whole like what was the genesis of counseling people and things like that? Like what for you kicked things off to make you want to go out of ways and treating the addictive mind? Yeah, two, well, two things, and you know, it's mm. funny. Here we are having a, a cocktail, and uh, there's a there's a fine line between use misuse dependency, I guess I would say mm -hmm. use, misuse, abuse, and dependency when you think of it in terms of, you know, addiction to substances and whatnot. The addictive mind is mostly about sex addiction. And um, that's sort of my been my passion working with people who are, are sex addicts and their partners of the people that are betrayed. So working with betrayal trauma. So how did it get started? We'll see. This is where the martini comes in. Hand. So <laughs> cheers. Mm, you know, my stepmother um, God bless her soul. She's passed on at this, at this time. She's, um, I mean, I'm trying to think when she died, she was young in her forties, um, died of alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And I remember this goes back to kind of sort of my own pathology of codependency being a kid and realizing what a true alcoholic really looked like and what it was like to live in an alcoholic family. And I had remembered, um, always wanting to fix her. So whenever there was um, a Christmas present or a birthday present, I'd buy her a journal. I'm like, this is the time to start mm. journaling. And it's funny. <laughs> but she's like, oh, she hasn't stopped. Um, and even my, my stepdad, actually, one time I got in trouble, I had snuck out of the house. Um, and they thought, I was probably 16 at the time, they thought I was, God only knows what they thought, but um, I had snuck out of the house to sneak to a 12-step meeting you snuck out of the house to sneak to a 12-step yeah that's right 
Uh, must have been about 16 years old because I desperately wanted to understand what was happening in addicts' minds. And maybe that would help me figure out a way to save my stepmom. Unfortunately, she never did get saved. And it ended up getting her in the end. And I think that that's probably what unconsciously and now consciously started my desire and passion for helping people. So do you feel like you're always trying to um, make up in some way for the fact that you weren't able to help your stepmom and you, you trying to like, you have that, that, that kind of that purpose through the pain? Well, you know, doing my own work and in, in mm -hmm. starting therapy in my twenties, I, I came to a place where I realized I had to accept her, her disability really, and accept that I couldn't change it or cure it. And I don't think, I think for the longest time, it wasn't my, um, it wasn't my desire, I think it, but I just think it morphed into, Hey, let me see what I could do. What kind of prevention work can I do? Maybe this is what paved the way for me branching out into just specializing in addiction. And, um, I would have to say it was her. So yeah. she, 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 she shaped my life. Uh, <laughs> even though, you know, the, I don't like to say good or bad. I don't like to put values on, on those words in life. But I think that, you know, the light and the dark have to coexist. Mm -hmm. It's meaning, you know, good or bad or whatever. I mean, it's, it's this meaning. She gave you meaning and purpose. And mm -hmm. there's that, there's that, there's that effect where you, you, there was something that you really wanted to be able to do. And, and what's powerful about that is that you then think of all of the, her passing, right? And I think about this, I think about my father's passing, right? Mm. I think about the meaning that it gave me, the, his last lesson that he gave me and what it really meant to me and why I'm on such a, on a, on a kick to understand myself and self-discoveries and master myself and things like that, is that last lesson that they gave is usually the most powerful. And you don't want their loss of the of the of the parent to be in vain and so you have like a a powerful lesson a gift that they give you and the, and the more that you can use that lesson the more meaning that their death had and the 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 less for some reason the less painful it is do you know what i'm saying yeah what was the lesson your dad gave you you think so my father passed from uh smoking all right so he got cancer he smoked cigarettes his whole life right Beautiful, wonderful man, uh, beautiful musician, uh, great father, great family figure, all that stuff. Nothing. I, I looked up to him very much. Um, but then he got smoking and he died. And even at the end, I was trying to talk to him. Hey, man, um, you might want to see. He never, never stopped smoking cigarettes. And I was, you know, I was really sad to lose the guy. Like it was it was a very heartbreaking thing that happened to me. And it was something that like I felt powerless to be able to help. It. And I was like, in, in ways, I was mad at my father because I was like, it was so selfish for him to lose, to die so early and so young and to leave the family, to leave my mom, to leave my brothers, to leave my nieces and my nephews and everybody around us that I was like, that sucked. Right. And the thing was, it's not his fault. But what I understood is that he couldn't master himself. He couldn't master his habits. And because of that, he left this world early and he actually left a pain in our hearts. And I never want to do that to the people in my life. So I'm set out a way to actually master my own emotions, to master my own habits, my own abilities, so that I can be there for the people that are counting on me. So I can be a better leader, a better lover, a better friend, and a better person, because I don't want to cause the pain that he caused me unintentionally because of his own ability to control his own habits. 
Wow. So, yeah. So that's my lesson, right? And it's yeah. powerful, you know? And it's one of those things that for me, it's, it's set a, a key. And I, and I love the guy and I don't, there's no, there's no like negatives. It's just, just a sadness, right? But at the same time, it's the, but that gift, and now I'm on these missions to do this, to interview heroes and to understand things and understand myself and to, to inspire other people to, for them to, to be able to pass those things along. Because I think one of the greatest tools we can ever give is our ability to master ourselves, our ability to believe in ourselves, our ability to actually view ourselves as the heroes of our own story is one of the greatest gifts you can give to yourself or give to other people. And I think one of the things I like about with what you do is you're re-empowering people where you have this addiction, where you have no control. You are a victim to your impulses. You're an in, a victim to the stories that affect you, right? And so you're empowering these people to master them. And so that's one of the reasons why I was excited to get you on and talk about these things because I know this is kind of your world. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and so like, how does that, how does that relate for you? Like how, what are you, what are you taking from that? Well, hearing your story about your dad and, you know, uh, and it wasn't that long ago, so I'm, I'm sure it's still fresh for you. I have to imagine mm -hmm. that mom passed a long time ago. Is um, well, kind of what's coming up for me is um, how hard it is to set your own boundaries and realize our individuation from other people's problems. Um, it's hard for me as a therapist. It's also hard for me as a person. And I, you know, one of the last, I do remember one of the last conversations I had with my stepmother. I hate to sound sort of grim about it. Um, but she was, tr I remember she was trying to, uh, go into rehab again. And she, I think she was trying to like weasel out of it or something like that. If I could remember. And she asked me, can you, can I please stay at your house? And I was young. I mean, I was in my 20, I was 23, something like that. And I, one of the hardest things I had to do. And one of the most empowering things I've ever done for myself was I said, no. And I don't regret that because I knew the truth is, is she would have robbed me blind. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, I mean, this is the nature of addiction. They, they cause people when, when, when your brains are hijacked, you do whack things. Yeah. So, um, not that she meant it. And, uh, she never talked to me again after that. And wow. so I know it, it seems like, yeah, she never did. And, um, you know, I think sometimes we get our peace inner psychically. Uh, doesn't always happen, but, um, you know, I do believe that there is something else after this and that's just my personal belief. And I just think sometimes interpsychically we, we still have connections to people, even if we don't have their physical being here. And there's been ways to sort of, uh, repair that rupture for me anyway. Uh, but yeah, it's, so I think the, the power, the, the lesson that I learned from that is it's going to be hard to say no, but sometimes you better say no or else uh, someone's going to take you down. It's that, yeah, well, there's two pieces. There's the, there's the tough love for them and then there's the survival for you. And those are two different, two different elements. The interesting thing about that is you're looking at that. There's something about the addictive mind. There's something mm -hmm. about being a victim of this where you're desperate and you're hungry and you're, and you, and you, and, and instead of coming into a situation powerfully being, you know what, I've got this, even if I can't find a meal tonight, I've got this, even if I can't, you know, if, even if I, if I sleep hungry or I sleep cold or whatever things is like, I've got this, there's a, there's that power. But then when you become a slave to your addictions, right, when someone doesn't give you what you want, they're now the enemy, like your, yeah. your mother's addictive mind turned you into the enemy for not giving her what she wanted because now you're the you're the enemy for not for not giving her that thing and that happens to a lot of us and 
And oh, one, sure. You know what I'm saying? And how, like, and we've seen those, those lessons, like, how do people tweak that? Like, how do you, how do you go from being that victim to, to empowering oneself? Like, what are those things look like? Are you like? talking about being the, the person that sort of, and I, I think that we're all, um, there's little children inside of us. I think yeah. we're all little children walking around in big people bodies and <laughs> it can get very dangerous. <laughs> I feel that way all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but... So I, I think of that person as like a little child, like mm -hmm. what they're doing is having a temper tantrum mm -hmm. in an adult way, right? In a big person way, in a big body way. I'm not going to, you're not going to give me what I want. You said no to me. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to stonewall you or I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, 86 you from my life and just blackball you or, or whatever, or whatever we do. Right. It's just, it's a temper tantrum. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for the person that's on the other end, setting boundaries. Setting boundaries is so hard. People say, oh, set boundaries, set boundaries. Well, it's not that easy because usually they're it's not it, usually they're not followed and you have to do it more than once. And the second thing is you usually look like the bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. That, so <laughs> it's hard. It's hard work. So well, when I work with partners, like people that are in relationships, I don't want to cut you off. Like no, nope, keep going. People that are in relationships with um with addicts. So, so I work with both, right? And People, you, you know, you hear the consensus of, of, of the culture, like, oh, well, just say no or, you know, just leave the person. And it's it's not that simple. It's not that black and white, um, especially when you have children involved or, or you know, you're sort of entangled in some some sort of way. It's difficult to set boundaries. That is that is probably just as hard than overcoming an addiction. Mm. You know, it's two parts. Well, yeah, well, you're also addicted to that person's relationship, right? You're addicted to the emotional comfort, the social comfort that you get about having that person in your life. I mean, in some small way, we are each other, right? In some small way, you know, the, the closer you get with people when you when you break up with them, whether there's other or a parent or uh, maybe a toxic son, you know, who knows, right? The having to separate from that person is like losing a piece of yourself. And that is super duper hard and there's 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 two pieces i want to touch on one being the like is there frameworks for setting boundaries right that's one piece and the other one is how do you how do you switch from being the victim of an addicted mind to owning the story and actually empowering yourself to to take ownership those are the two pieces i want to touch on because those are the two elements and that's and so there it seems like both sides so either one of those that you want to tackle okay, yeah, we'll, we'll talk the, we'll talk about the so this is perfect for me i'm a gemini and I think that's probably why I work with addicts and partners because I can, my, the duality of my personality can, can kind of sift through them. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about the partners first with boundaries. This is, this is the formula. Boundaries are not boundaries unless there's a consequence. It's that simple. So for instance, you know, Hey, um, don't eat the last piece of cake in the fridge. Right. <laughs> so maybe a boundary I would have, um, <laughs> Okay, well, someone eats the last piece of cake in the fridge, then what? What are you going to do about it, right? Um, the boundary has to have a consequence, and the consequence has to be enforced, or else it doesn't make any difference. Mm. And more times than not, we'll always have to set the boundary. Let's think about a, a child, for instance, right? Don't eat the cookies before dinner. Well, they're going <laughs> to. It's just a matter of time. And so, okay, so what do we do? Okay, if you eat if you eat a cookie before dinner, then we're not gonna have cookies in the house anymore. And then you don't buy cookies in the house anymore, right? It's yeah. an example of how to actually set boundaries. Some people are so afraid of it though. Um, again, why is that? Because of the temper tantrum that occurs on the other side. 
you or the conflict. The, the right, it's an avoidance of conflict. Mm. And in the book, we we talk about avoidance. Um, the book just uh, to kind of go into that. The book sort of is based on uh, a Buddhist psychology philosophy, which basically says that all problems are all problems and issues and concerns in the world are boil down to three things, and they refer to those three things as poisons. And one of those things is avoidance. The other one is ignorance, so such as denial. And lastly, it's um, attachment. So that could be addiction or attachment to a person. So the Buddhists think that, you know, that those are the, the things that it all boils down to those three problems, those three poisons. So we try to find anecdotes to mm -hmm. those. So what is the going back to the, the second question, mm -hmm. circling around to it, you asked, how does a person change their mind? How do they own the story? How do they go from a victim to someone who feels empowered and takes responsibility for what's going on instead of feeling like they have no control? That it's hard to say, and it's interesting your your word choice because a lot of the people that I work with, <laughs> um, uh, the addicts that I work with, um, mm -hmm. are don't really identify it necessarily as a victim because of the damage that they've caused in their life. Mm -hmm. If not, they would consider themselves more of a perpetrator than a victim. Um, it, it flips though, right? Like at first they feel they keep doing it. Like, so imagine like, uh, I want to, uh, uh, let me, let me into your house so I can steal yeah. your stuff so I can empower myself. Right. And then you're like, and then you don't, and there's that initial rage of not getting what you want. Right. And then there's that shame and guilt that come on afterwards that piles up. You're like, oh, I'm the worst person ever. Right. So that combination of like that person's the enemy to I'm a terrible person. Right. And I feel like both those situations isn't owning the actual truth of the problem. So, and I appreciate you analyzing my words. Please call me out as I go through this process. I could, I could feel it. I was like, oh, I'm under a spotlight. That's right. That's right. Uh, therapy. Got it. Okay. Um, but, but as we go through it, you're right. Those, but the, I want to address the, neither one of those ones takes on the responsibility where, you know what? I'm going to own this. This is me. And I take responsibilities and it's okay. Right. That's, that's the, uh, that's not this, that's not the same thing as either one of those situations. Yeah. So, I hear what I what I'm hearing. I'm gonna I'm gonna think, tell you what I think I'm hearing you say, and then yeah. the best answer. Let's do it. You say, uh, okay. So what's the cure for addiction? And you know what? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, don't have, I don't have that answer. I don't have a simple answer. It's so it's so much more complex than that. It's not. Mm. And every single, so I don't treat my clients like a um, like a textbook, you know, protocol of this is what we do next. I. I try to to get to them, know them as people, and get to know how they tick, what they like, you know, um, what's their dog's name, what do they like, you know, what do they do for fun, things like that. I get to know the, their personalities because that helps me dictate the individual treatment plan. You know, I'm not going to have someone, oh, you need to read this book when the person's not a reader and haven't hasn't picked up a book since the fifth grade. That doesn't make any sense. That intervention is not going to work. But what I can say, a small little anecdote. You said, okay, you mentioned, oh yeah, I look like I, I'm a bad person mm -hmm. if I go and do X, Y, or Z. So that's shame, right? Mm -hmm. Shame is I'm a bad person. I, I'm, I'm not worthy. And so one of the key elements that we try to do in therapy with addicts specifically is reduce the shame eventually. I think we need shame sometimes. I, I you know, shame gets a bad rap because uh, we're all about, you know, ever since Brene Brown, right? It's like shame reduction, shame reduction. Um, <laughs> but, 
and that's all fine and dandy for the average banana. But when we're dealing with addicts and in particular sex addicts, we need that shame. We need, we need to sit with it for a little bit and realize, wait a minute, what, what, what happened here? And how does this feel sitting in it? And what do we get from that gift? There's a gift that we get from that shame. It's values, it's amends, it's humility. And those are gifts that people have now resiliency tools that they can have to move forward. So what we do with that is like, okay, here's what you did. Here's what you did. Now we know, now we have the ammunition on the table. It's not going to hurt anybody. Now we got to lean into it. We lean into the shame by what rigorous honesty. That's the only thing that I, I say to my clients is from now on, there is rigorous honesty, brutal honesty, because it hurt. The truth hurts sometimes. But most people can get over the pain of the truth, whereas they don't necessarily get over the pain of betrayal. Mm. So the the pain of the of, of something that you've done, right? Some sort of shame about that you can lean into and say, okay, I I admit here's where I'm at, here's what happened. But if somebody hurts you, someone some sort of betrayal happens, right? I, I associate that with pain. Or there's some sort of thing that happens, then that is harder to go over. What about that makes it hard versus the shame? Um, what? So, ask the question again. Your what, what? Yeah. What about the pain of betrayal is more painful? What is? What is it harder to get over about the pain of betrayal? Oh my God! Well, well, well. First of all, uh, have you ever been betrayed? Yeah. It's. <laughs> I know you have. <laughs> It's it's rough. It's it, it's a phenomenon. It's it's hard to kind of uh, capture the essence and words of what it actually feels like. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is a, a pain. You know, not to you know not to quote Eckhart Tolle, but that pain body becomes very real. You know, um, it, it, it so can be. Yeah. Because here, because here's here's the thing too. Like a fo- focal conflict theory suggests that when we um, uh, sort of lean into conflict then we're going to have a heightened level of anxiety for a while. Um, Well, not for a while, but increased level of anxiety immediately. But then it dissipates and it's gone. Whereas betrayal and betrayal trauma is something that sort of lingers. It's not it's not linear. It comes and it goes, if that's make if that makes any sense. So I want to talk about you said focal conflict theory. Uh huh. It's a it's a type of a theory that I try to use when I'm in group therapy and doing group therapy. And focal conflict theory is the fact that there's a, a tension and then a release. Is that what it yeah, is? Yeah, you can think of it like that. Um, I, oh, geez, when you say tension release, I, I always think of like something I might something sexual. So, like I have <laughs> maybe and there's some. But yeah, kind of. So the idea is, and you can think about how this plays out in our daily life. Let's pretend you have beef with somebody. Okay. okay. Wait, it happens if you've been alive long enough. You have beef yeah. with someone, but it's not like that bad, but you feel it. You feel the charge, right? Yeah. So you have one or two options. I always think of this as like a decision tree. And this is comes from the, the, the theory. The decision is, okay, do I just avoid, right? The poison of, do I just avoid it? And then, I, and then not deal with it. And sometimes that's the answer. Cause sometimes, you know, you see somebody at a party or you see someone at a social event or a work event or and you're like, oh, it's not worth it. And you avoid the situation and that's fine. But the beef is always there, right? You've got charge is always there. It's just a little bit, but you could manage it. You're like, yeah, whatever. But sometimes, and at some point, 
that and I call, you know what you know what I mean by when I say beef, right? That charge. Yeah, there's because, an animosity. There's a there's a narrative yeah. story in the back of your mind that's eaten up like five percent of your brain. Right, sure. And you know what? Sometimes we we deal with it. It's manageable. I call it mm -hmm. the moderate level of anxiety, right? But then sometimes there's people that really bug us. May, or maybe it's some a beef that we have with like our significant other or a best friend or a family member. You can't avoid it. It's impossible. You can, you could try, you could try, but it that anxiety grows and grows and grows and grows. So what you have to do is you have to lean into it and you have to acknowledge it and you have to bring it up. And let me tell you, that's going to suck. <laughs> but once you get to this, that's the fact. But once you get to it, that heightened point of anxiety where you're like, oh, here it goes. I'm going to like talk about it because I can't hold it in anymore. You talk about it. Maybe you get into a huge fight. Maybe you don't. You talk it through. Whatever the case may be, it's gone. Mm -hmm. It's over. Yeah. So, so it's kind of um, going back to like leaning into the shame. The better someone gets at talking about leaning in and, and, and uh, sort of even processing what someone has done, if it's even a perpetrating behavior, um, the, the shame will go down and it becomes more manageable for both parties, actually. Mm. I mean, that makes a ton of sense because the way that I just think about it is like, I think, you know, you're, you're this is probably not an accurate analogy or whatever, but this is just the way I think about it is that we all have these storylines, these narratives running through our head. Right. And when you have them built up with relationships with people, right. And, mm -hmm. and after you have so many, you're, you go through some sort of survival mode method, right. Where it's like, especially with difficult conversations mm -hmm. and usually the difficult conversations is a combination of something that you have the feel that you feel that you want to communicate that you're afraid to communicate because you feel that they're not going to receive it well, and there's a consequence. So uh, a kid talking to their parent about something that they may not approve of in the, in, the, in the chat, there's some sort of power that that person has over you, significant other, parent, boss, whatever it might be. And then what happens is you these stories, and it goes it goes through those, those R's, right? The resistance, resentment, rejection, right? And it starts to build up. And so if you don't if you don't open up the floodgates and let that out, you know, you go to try to talk to them and like 95% of your brain is taken up with all of these stories of why this person is the enemy. And then you just, just unleash. And so instead of dealing with it at five or 10 and whatever percent. And so I always look at that. And so I go, okay, this is built up to a threshold where it's, it's needed to be talked about because otherwise we can all, we can smell the energy. You can feel mm -hmm. it, you can taste it. Mm -hmm. And and for me, I've, I went from running away from a lot, a lot of the stories to where now I kind of seek it out and I will grab someone. I will hold them like, let's have a conversation about this. We need to talk. We need to get through this maybe a bit much. Uh, but I want to get through this because I, I, I do, I'm, I am kind of addicted to the resolution part, right. To, to, yeah, the repair. Yeah. The repair part. Cause I know that feeling feels so much better and I'll oh, do it perfectly okay. all the time, but you know, it's, so well, that's you know, I think the that, point is the, the, what's hard and what you're saying is for most people, it is, they rob themselves of that feeling when it comes to repair, because the only way to get to repair is going through that momentary anxiety. Is that why the betrayal is so hard? Because you never get a chance to repair? Betrayal is complicated, right? There is a person that may be betrayed, and I don't know what that would mean to somebody, right? It usually implies and that there's an intent behind it. Um, 
then there's people that I work with specifically who have betrayal trauma, which is kind of a, a whole nother ball of wax. It's uh, it's a complex trauma and it takes quite a while to help heal it because when someone's been betrayed, betrayed, your brain is rewired. That's it. You, you will look at the world through a different lens. You don't look at people the same way anymore mm. and you're changed. Um, so there's, it, it, there's not one answer of, mm. of how, 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 why is it so bad? I mean, I think the healing process is not linear the same way it is for addicts. Mm. You know, you stop using, you have sobriety and sobriety in of itself, by the way, is not enough. Um, in my opinion, you, there needs to be more that's done because usually when there's addiction, it has weaven its way into sort of every, every the daily life and, and how someone lives. So they have to do a complete, um, I don't know, um, maybe like this side of a emotional lobotomy in a way <laughs> they have to sort of take some parts of them out. And usually their, their growth is linear, more or less, um, success in it and treatment is never linear, uh, for the betrayed partner or the, uh, the addict necessarily, cause there's relapse, but there usually is a progression over time where you don't see that with betrayal trauma, complex trauma. So it keeps coming back because what I've seen, at least for myself, is with the betrayal piece, is if I can find a gift in the lesson, and if I can find gratitude for the person who betrayed me, I generally recover a lot quicker. Um, and I may not get being heard from them, but if I can hear myself, there's a power in that. So like if someone if someone betrayed me uh, and they did something that was that that they took my trust or they did something like okay well what's the what's the power in that lesson and if i can find that like well you know they made space for new people and i'm grateful because they gave me a new opportunity they put me on a better path i became better because of that they if i can find some sort of power in that lesson and i can give myself the gift of gratitude and i can and i can go through and it's not easy but if i can but first it's kind of digging through the dirt Right. And you kind of like let out all of this, like, how do you feel about this person? You're like this person sucks. Ah, you just like rage it all out. And then you look for that gift and then you can find that gratitude and you can be appreciative for that person, especially if you can actually contact that person and communicate it. Um, I, I don't, for me, that betrayal becomes a lot less um, after I go through a process like that. That's it. I've gotten that. Otherwise you'll never get a chance to be heard and you never get closure. And that's the thing that I think that comes back is that story comes back and be like, why'd you do this to me? Right? It's that perpetual victim for myself, perpetual victim mindset that comes back up. That is like the, you know, the world's unfair. This is unfair versus going, actually, that was a, that was a good thing. That was useful. That was beneficial. That helped me in some way, shape or form. So I, I had, I've had betrayal in the past as we all have. Um, but for me, at least that's what I've seen to be benefits. I don't know for you of what you've seen to be most beneficial for recovering from betrayal. I think you're a very big person, Dylan. I think you're, uh, you know, I think you have a lot more, um, you know, uh, grace and, and, and maybe resiliency than the, than most people. So I, I don't, I typically don't take that approach mm -hmm. with my clients that have had betrayal trauma. I mean, some people just need to fold like a tent and that's it. And <laughs> That's the end of it. Um, yeah. So I, I feel like sometimes it can be a little Pollyanna um, to think of 
to think of, of the trauma, like people that have been ser severely betrayed in those terms. And I, I can't in good faith sit with someone um, and say, hey, let's try to find the strengths or the gifts out of a situation because sometimes situations are just crap. Mm -hmm. And and for someone to want to want someone to, like I said, you know, not succeed or fold like a tent, you know, maybe I do, too. And, and uh, that's OK. Mm -hmm. And that's OK. You know, I think of all this idea of forgiveness, just it comes from these Christian underpinnings of our culture. And yeah, it sounds like a great idea in theory, but how does it actually play out in real life? Feelings are feelings. What if, we, if we're angry, let's let's lean into that anger. Let's let's embrace that anger. What does that anger give? What does that anger give to us? Yeah. Um, anger gives us strength, energy, assertiveness, uh, and sometimes coming up with. Um, having a client of mine, for instance, or someone that's extreme, you know, experienced severe betrayal trauma, asking them to come up with the gifts that they've gotten from this horrific circumstance is, could be actually re-traumatizing and minimizing to their experience from my, from my perspective. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go straight into it. Uh, otherwise you're kind of like the, the people that say that they're they're woke and everything's okay and they just kind of smile and go everything's okay and you can tell that they're yeah, holding i wouldn't go straight into it or in it at all <laughs> yeah yeah they're, they're, well that's just things like well i just think about it as like you're trying to hold like this unresolved pain below the surface right and you're like holding down all those balloons right underneath the water and you're trying to hold that down and if you if you're just everything's great no there's nothing underneath the water right i feel like you got to get all that stuff out so whether that is raging or crying or screaming or yelling or or you know uh right. shouting or 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 you know running until you drop until the ground hits but you you have all that energy you got to dig all that stuff out and then at the end of that then i go through the process of going okay where is this at and i'm not saying that this is a so this is the only thing that I've seen for myself to be beneficial is that otherwise there's you know that that it kind of pops up like a balloon where you're like sure and I can yeah. see it I can yeah. see it working and I've done that uh, rage to gratitude mm -hmm. exercise for myself mm -hmm. actually and I can see how it works mm -hmm. um under certain circumstances and for certain people but remember I was saying we have to take mm -hmm. we got to look at people holistically and what are their needs and where are they at I I think it's great if someone's been burned mm -hmm. I'll use that language. Yeah. I think complex trauma requires a little something different. Mm. When you're saying that, like you're, saying you're getting to understand people holistically, right? You're understanding all pieces of them, right? So what are you doing? Like talk me through that process. So if I, if you're getting to know somebody, right? And they're, they have complex trauma, they've been betrayed, they've been set up, other things have happened in the world. They're addicted to things and they're just a hot mess, right? right. As a technical term. A hot mess right and they're trying to but you're trying to understand them right what are you really trying to when you're trying to assemble the understanding like what are you really trying to understand so that you can provide some sort of solution like what is the pathway because i feel like you know that they're here they're, they're at some they're at some point in their life you know you want to help them get to another point which is feel better have less like res, heal this trauma or do something with it right How, what are you looking for to make that map what does that what does that look like for you just to get well you know um first of all i'm starting i was feeling territorial over over my clients when you were talking about this i don't i think if anyone's like going to be the hot mess it's probably me <laughs> in the room over them <laughs> if anything if anything um i have so much respect and yeah. and uh compassion for them because they However the hell they do it, they hold it together against mm. all odds. Their worlds get turned upside down and they're still, you know, getting up in the middle of the night to feed the children, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. 
So I, I never I never think of them that way as a hot mess. I think of them as like, wow, how how are you doing it? How are you doing mm-hmm. it? I'm probably more of the hot mess. And what do I do? I mean, I think it's like, what happened to you? You know, just tell me your story. Mm-hmm. You know, through the, through the narratives and through our own narratives, we we get to know each other. And I do something that I do in my therapy that I do less in my real life is listen. <laughs> the time to listen um, if, if you know me in my real life i'm a huge blabbermouth right uh-huh. uh and i don't listen so <laughs> you can i've seen I, you switch the gears i have oh good yeah but, but it, it depends if you feel like it's if it's if someone feels like they're in need otherwise you're a very fun loving person that's one thing yeah. I'm saying, you have a great time you like to have a great time make sure everything everybody's having a good time yeah. and that's it's it's great but i've also seen when people are in pain or they're suffering or whatever i see you switch gears you yeah. turn into like, hey, this person needs me and I'm there for them, right? And it's been friends and other things, which is beautiful and wonderful. But yeah, and at the same time, like we all have moments. There's not something that you 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 are labeled a hot mess. I mean, I've been a hot mess. We all have I it. There's, there's moments, right? <laughs> there's moments. But when I think of complex trauma, I think of, oh, this is I, this is a hot mess, right? Is And I don't mean that as a... Oh my God. It's, 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 it's not a disparaging thing, but I've been there. Where I've, I, like that. I think like... Ooh, we got a mountain to climb. That's what I, yeah. that's how I think of it. That's how I think of it. But I always yeah. equate everything to, I like to that. <laughs> as you climb mountains in real life. I know you do climb mountains in real life. And that is, I think of, honestly, I think of it the same way. I really do like that analogy because you're like, okay, I'm here and I want to get there. And it's going to take a ton of effort, you mm-hmm. know? And there's, there, but there's a, there's a, a power in it. I was just trying to think like, how do you Sherpa people up the mountain? Like, what does that, what does that look like? How, how are you helping them to... <laughs> Slowly, very slowly. In Nepal, they they have this language to say pole pole it, to get up a mountain. It means slow, very slow, very slow. Mm. Um, pole pole is kind of the the thing I have in the back of my mind. We get there slowly. We get there one step at a time, and that's mm. how I it's how I climb mountains too. Right? I'm like, okay, if I can just take one more step, <laughs> and then another step, I'll eventually get there. Oh, I, I know we've climbed some mountains together. Yeah. And yeah. so I, 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 yeah. It'll happen. <laughs> but, you know, it might hurt on the way. It might hurt. You might get, see, it's, you, you might get hurt. You might get lost. You might have to change trails if there's a trail that's closed. You know, you know, you might have to put on some crampons. You know, you never know. You never know what you're going to have to do. What do you think of the common mistakes that people make when they're trying to get from A to B? Right. What, are, what do you think are the things that they, I tell you just in general, um, like general, like with, with the population or. Uh, I mean, I don't know besides general what, no, what who, you know what I who, think it is. Huh? And this is, this is in therapy mm-hmm. and in real life and I, therapy is real life, but you know, I try to have my, my two separate worlds. Mm-hmm. They give up. They give up. I think that's the, the number one problem. And so many times I've seen, um, a you know clients not want to do not really prepared to do the work they need to do um and that's okay maybe they're not ready maybe they'll come back uh maybe they'll come back when they're ready and a lot of times that does happen but same thing on the mountain you know time i mean i think i've had this experience with you we've been on the mountain with someone and we're like oh i can't do it what you know there's altitude someone doesn't feel well or or they just can't do it and they give up and like let's go down we don't need to make the summit they give up more times than not. I'm not. I'm not saying that there aren't real variables that get in the way. There are, but you're asking me what's the one thing, and I'm gonna just 
say that. Yeah, and it's, it, we're, this is a broad stroking terms. And you're right, we, we've seen people give up while climbing a mountain, metaphorically and in real life. And mm -hmm. it's 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 painful to see because you want to support them. And, you know, the, the natural instinct, at least my instinct, is to push them, right? Is to, And that's probably not, I'm going to say it's not the way to do it. There's, there's, there's ways to inspire or lead people up the mountains. And, and if they can, if not, it's, it's ultimately their choice. Like you don't push someone off of bungee jumping. If someone's bungee right. jumping, you don't, you don't shove them off. It's got to be at the end of the day, it's, everything's got to be your own choice. Oh yeah. Problem. Oh my God. That's true. You, you know? know, I, um, I, I did bungee jump one time. Yeah. And I'll do it again as long as I live. Um, yeah. <laughs> it but I remember being, you know, on the edge, they're like, don't touch me, don't touch me. And I guess they're not allowed to, right? Mm -hmm. But I didn't know that because I was like terrified, you know, someone was going to just push me off. Don't touch it. It took me 20 minutes to jump off that thing to get the Where courage. Where were you at? Where were we at? Was that New Zealand? Uh, I was in New Zealand. So you were at the world's tallest bungee jumping? It wasn't the tallest, but it was okay. where bungee jumping was invented. Oh, okay. So it was the very first bungee jump ever invented. And uh, it was um, on the South Island. So it was, it was, uh, my friend Kristen was doing it. And uh, she said, Do you want to do it with me? I said, Oh, hell no, I'm not doing that. I have no desire. But I was riding bicycle by, and we rode by the bungee the day before. And uh, I'm like, Oh, that doesn't look so high. I can do it. And uh, so I signed up. And once you're up there, you're sort of committed because. I also did it. I felt guilty because I had hogged up the line and people were waiting for me to jump. So like, I have to do this. And I had to dig deep. I had to dig deep. But, uh, but they don't touch you. And so you're right. You're, you're right. Um, you can't, you can't, you can't be pushed. You got to, you got to make your, your own brave leap you forward. Know, you know, what's funny about that is I, I actually, from that experience, I use something that they taught me on that bungee to my clients in therapy right now. Mm. They, they told me that day, this is how experiences, by the way, shape you, right? Because I still remember I was, I said, don't touch me. Don't touch me. I'm like yelling and freaking out. I'm sure. And uh, I have it on video somewhere. And they said, you're not even close to the edge. You're so far from the edge. You're not even there yet. And sometimes when my clients are like, what are we doing next? What are we doing? I'm like, wait a minute. We're not even close to the edge. We're not even there yet. And I sometimes catch myself saying that because I know what it feels like to anticipate the jump. Mm. And I remember what it felt like to when they said, you're not even close to the edge. You're okay. I was like, oh, I can breathe. I'm not there yet. <laughs> yeah, that pressure. You got to have a little space, right? It's that creating that space in the moment, right? right? And that, right. And that, that's a really powerful lesson. The Looking at that, and looking at how you say the biggest issue with people is that they give up, they give up on themselves, mm -hmm. they give up on themselves, they don't have, they don't believe in themselves to make the jump, to make the climb, to move forward, to break up that relationship, whatever it might be, they give up. So how do you help people find the courage to carry on, right? One of the tactics, right, you just, you just talked about with bungee jumping was you're not even near the edge, which gives them space to kind of calm down and and mm -hmm. gather themselves. Are there other things that you help people encourage them? Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, not to get into all like the theory, I, I sometimes will use, you know, motivational interviewing to help mm -hmm. them see the benefits of, of why they're doing it. Um, I help them, I kind of will share the rationale of why we're doing it. What's the point anyway? I sort of bring in the existential piece of like, hey, this is, has meaning. Um, and then I always go back to Winston Churchill, you know, when you're in the middle of hell, 
don't turn back, keep walking. <laughs> I always tell them that. <laughs> I, I say that all the time because it's the truth. Like you're you're stuck there in the middle. Like now's not the time to turn around. <laughs> A hundred percent. That's a, yeah, that's a good one. Cause you're trying to, you're, you're reframing, you're refocusing and, and that's a quite, but that thing is like, if you could find those little pieces of lessons, right? Like, mm -hmm. and, and what's interesting is, um, like depending on how you got the insights, it depends on how powerful that lesson is for you. Cause you can go on, you can go on Instagram right now and you can go to motivational posts and you can scroll all day long and say, Oh, that's a cool quote. That's a good quote. That's a, mm -hmm. wow, that's a great quote. It means absolutely nothing. I can't think of one quote that I've pulled from Instagram to actually leverage to pull me forward. But what you got that thing of you're not even near the edge yet, right? You got that in that in a true moment of terror, terror. right? And you can pull right. that. And yeah, that's and that thing is like so then like adding that meaning, like adding that, how do you add that power to the lesson? You know, right? It's hard in an office setting. So um we so I believe in an existential learning theory which sort of basically it's that, you know, our learning is solidified and crystallized when we have an experience to tie on with it. So if I read a mechanics book, right, how to change a carburetor, right? I read about it. I'm, I'm still not going to really be able to completely figure out how to do that unless I was read it and then had someone show me and be practice in real life how to do it then i'll know how to do it for for real right mm. and so in therapy we try to recreate some of those experiences through different interventions um i like to bring in a lot of jungian work and sand tray work we're actually uh, sano is doing uh or having a workshop it happened last weekend and it's happening next weekend it's a facing the shadow workshop. It's a six day intensive and it gives people out of the office and, you know, into a group setting where they could have some experiences with different people. And through those experiences, learning is crystallized. So that's an example of how we try to use the office setting and, and be creative with how to make it, how to make the learning more experiential so people can have that transition. So that's really interesting. And looking at that, so, I mean, you're talking about if you can experience it, not just talking about it, not just knowing it logically, but actually to, to, to see it, to practice it, to feel it, to experience it has got more of an impact. And I love facing the shadow. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing concept because it's the last thing we want to look at, right? We all want to talk sure. about the beauty and the peace and the wonderfulness. So I love the face in the shadow. I want to do a little exercise with you. I want to kind of yeah. look at this and say, just because you know me, right? I'm, I'm a VR developer. I build virtual reality experiences and things and stuff and so forth and so on, right? Um, I actually designed one of them inside your office while you're away. You're kind enough to let me use your office. Oh, and yeah. Working with my nonprofits and it's something that we still work on today. And That's it's so good. great because it was drawn up in the boards inside your office uh, uh, overlooking a beautiful, uh, beautiful scene. Um, but looking at some of these experiences, I'd love to translate this and do a little exercise of what are the experiences that like the, like facing your shadow, what does that look like? And I'll try to kick that back in my own words in VR and we'll together try to try to co-create what would something look like this in VR as just a, as a little thought experience. Okay, and we could do it. So I, I have to, I have to give a shout out because um, the face in the shadow actually comes from a protocol written by Patrick Carnes, who hmm. is a, you know, the trailblazer in uh, sort of bringing sex addiction to the forefront of, of our, of our knowledge and bringing it up like, Hey, we have, this is a problem and we need to hmm. look at it. And so the facing the shadow workshop is based on 
his, uh, his book and his research and uh, some of the tasks that he thinks addicts need mm -hmm. to achieve in order to uh, reach recovery. So I just got to, I got to say that, but we can, we can play it. We'll play your game. So, okay. Sure. Sure. So. Yeah. Shout out to Patrick. Thanks brother. Appreciate this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah. So what does this look like? Uh, if you could give me like a bit of a mental walkthrough and, and then I'll, I'll, I'll say this is what it could look like in VR and I'll kick it back to you and then we'll go back and forth and we'll play a little game here. So facing the shadow is a relational experience. It's uh, a, I would say it's a third psychoeducation. So there's teaching component there's a third process which means you kind of just talk about what comes up for you and last would be a um an experiential component so mm -hmm. they're literally writing things down they're drawing things they're acting things out there's a trauma egg that's going to be done this coming weekend with people and a sexual fantasy timeline for instance so they have to draw out their sexual fantasies they're going to draw out an egg that's filled with all their trauma and they're not allowed to use words. So there's like an experiential component to that. Mm. Um, so, then, so, it's, it's, so I would say it's broken up into those three parts. Got it. So it sounds like what you're doing is you're kind of having them take baby steps, micro movements of them expressing what are their feelings, what are they going on inside their minds, right? So you, you, you take first something as, which is fairly detached um, which is a, a writing prompt, like maybe what is your sexual fantasies that you're not willing to communicate or whatever that might be. And they're writing it out, right? So it's a, that's a mini hoop to jump through. The next one is drawing that, right? So now they're expressing that in more of a visual terms that it then they start to now communicate that to a higher level. And then the acting it out is that embodiment of that third level, which now makes it more of an experience, right? Then it allows them to kind of fully experience what that's like. And right. then you have, and then you have this egg, which is kind of like the, the, uh, the trauma, of what it is is that is that correct what that's just that? another it would be another experience i would say it's it's one of the activities that's experiential that's mm. so usually an experiential activity got it. it so then if i it was could be done it could be done in vr mm. actually um because well one you can create right with the senses a feeling and also um they could be prompted to do the activities on their own and this is a group setting or is this a yeah it's group got it so then if i was to communicate to you this is what i would do something like this in vr right if this was if this was uh facing your shadows vr mm -hmm. uh so everybody puts on their headsets they're all remote they all meet inside a shared group space uh led by the uh, amazing christy cosbert <laughs> and and say okay great here's the, here's what we got facing shadows this is a multi-step exercise we're going to be meeting in this group room we're going to be breaking off into our own private meditative spaces and then we're going to be coming together to also collaborate and co-create and share our insights the first step is going to be the writing prompts and the writing prompt is going to be based upon your sexual desires or fantasies or things that you uh, maybe don't feel safe to talk about so we're going to break off into your own rooms and you're going to speak into this orb you're going to speak in this orb what fantasies and desires and hopes and thoughts you have why because writing in vr sucks so if you can speak into this orb and you can actually get those words out, that would be the first step. And you take that orb and you can bring it in. If you're brave enough, you can share it with the group of people. I don't know if you share those writing prompts with people, but you come back in like a hub and spoke. Yep. You share that. And then you go, okay, great. Now the next step is we're going to take that fantasy that you've drawn and that you've shared or that you've 
that you've communicated through the talking sexual orb. And then you're going to go off, you're going to draw what that looks like. And then everybody inside VR has their own drawing pens because you can draw inside VR and there's drawing tools. And then you could draw out with stick figures, a crude and ugly. So everyone's got X amount of time. Let's just say 15 minutes or whatever to draw these things out. They break off into their own rooms, do it, take a photo inside VR, come back, share that photo with everybody describing what it is and looking at and go, oh, that's great. Awesome. Now, the third thing, what we're going to be doing is going to be acting those things out. And I don't know if that's with people watching in the group setting or not, but if it was, then you'd hit a button. There would be some sort of risque scene. Maybe there's some 10 of the most common sexual scenes, and maybe that's at home, in a car, uh, behind a dumpster. I don't know. Whatever those situations are for those people. And then they, and then they actually go and they can act those things out, either on some sort of mannequins. Um, and they're actually going through those motions, um, or they could be doing role playing with other people in VR and with you, if you have actors or whatever that thing might look like, then they can go and practice those experiences. And then they can come in as a group and then they could share that one by one. And they could share that along with a pre and post survey of how do you feel about this? What are your associations with shame or guilt or things around this? Level that one to 10 into intensity. And then after the experience, you can then post rate that to see if you're actually making a dip in the actual process in terms of the emotional impact and your willingness to share it, communicate and any shame or guilt you have around it. That would be my thoughts. What are your, what's your takeaway on that? Um, I love everything you're saying, but you lost me a little bit at seeing the sexual acts. Cause remember this is for sex addicts. So mm -hmm. pornography is off limits mm -hmm. completely. So showing any kind of sexual act of any kind would be really dysregulating. It would be considered a relapse and some partners may have some beef with that. So, but I acted out then. No, it's great. It's great. This is this is helpful. I, I was trying to figure out when I was seeing it acting out. When you tell them to act it out in person, are they watching each other act it out, or how? What do you no, mean acting it out? So it's it's. I don't I don't think that. Yeah, I think it's. Um, I guess sometimes I have to remember my my therapy jargon. Sometimes doesn't always translate. Um, so sometimes we'll do an exercise called sculpting, and it comes from Virginia Satir, where okay. she would have someone like sculpt so like for instance i would be uh i would be uh, someone might my, say my, i'm angry so i might sculpt myself right make a face and like do this with my hands and stand there like a statue or somebody else might sculpt me like saying hey i this is how i experience you and they might sculpt me like sculpt me like that that's what i mean by um by acting things out i know we do another activity a removing hats exercise where we try to bring up the judgments that we make about each other. And then we sort of give us the space to take away that judgment and get to know us for, get to know people for who they really are. Mm. Because as people, we do make judgments about others. We make judgments on how someone sounds, how, you know, the bag of bones people carry around. We make judgments all the time. What about that is, um, I just want to know, just to elaborate on that, the, the six day Face Your Fears workshop, what is the result that they get out of that? What are they... Well, usually that that book kind of covers therapy tasks that are mm. to be accomplished by addicts, and that that would take in if you came into therapy once a week, mm -hmm. it would take a year to get through it. So those six days, sort of number one, capture a whole year of individual therapy. I would say mm. the other component is you have the other people to to bounce yourself off of right and sort of and Yalom talks about this in interpersonal theory that when our self-esteem comes from being able to share um 
are maybe something deep, dark secret, and then having someone share back either something similar that they've done or experience or, or actually just say, Hey, it's okay. Like, I still like you. And we mm -hmm. get our self-esteem that way. Mm -hmm. And having that experience, it helps people reduce that shame. Right. And now okay. once you reduce the shame, then you could tackle other things. Okay. Let me try this again then. Okay. Yeah. Let me try it one more time. Okay. So we had the speaking orb. You speak into what the thing is you go out, right. And then you share that with everybody the speaking orb of that situation. Mm -hmm. The next one is the drawing and you can, you take a photo of the drawing, you come back and you share to everybody what that drawing orbs is. The mm -hmm. third thing is a situation where you have a role-playing situation where you hit a button and now they're in an environment where they have to talk to a sexual partner and they have to communicate what their sexual desires are and have that and make it be heard in a way that they feel safe and they feel heard and they feel received. So then they can go through that and they can, they can actually work on the actual role-playing scenario of, um, I like it. Um, yeah, I have sexual desires around X, Y, and Z, uh, as described in this, in this drawing, um, you know, is it something that we could try or, or whatever it is, but in a way that they can actually practice the communication of, of feeling heard and seen and communicating their sexual desires instead of, you know, covering up their shame and guilt and not feeling like they can express what their desires are. Would that be better? So, you know, uh, yes. And okay. I think there would be. So when you talk about the sexual desires, I think we're talking about two different populations here. Sure. So when I do sex therapy with mm. people, that's a whole nother can of worms. Mm -hmm. the, the the book specifically gears is in the, the workshop is geared towards sex addicts. Mm -hmm. So really their sexual desires may not be the best. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Sure. And so I don't really care what their sexual, I mean, I, I don't really care about them reaching their sexual desires. Mm -hmm. Their second, but our sexuality is so, um, it's so interesting because typically a lot of the things that we become sexually attracted to or aroused by sometimes correlate with past traumas. Mm -hmm. And so doing a, when we do a sexual fantasy timeline, mm -hmm. there's a, or, you know, a sexual fantasy drawing it out. We use that as a tool to correlate it with our trauma and say, Hey, how did I learn that, you know, I like getting my toes sucked. You know what I'm saying? Like, where did that come from? And I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm not, I'm not making yeah. a judgment on that. That's just something that just came up. That's uh -huh. not an addiction. It's, um, I'm just making that up, but where, where does that come from? And if we sort of deconstruct it, we could figure it out mm -hmm. because we learn very early on about our sexuality. We learn, we learn about it and we learn about relationships through our parents. So I would, the goal is, um, not achieving the sexual desire fantasy, mm -hmm. but really the goal would be learning to have control over your sexuality versus sexuality having control over you. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. So then if I try that again, okay. And that's what, that's what I'm trying to understand. Cause at first I thought it was, it was the expression of your sexual desire. And then I thought it was about removing the shame and guilt around your sexual desire by being able to communicate that with people. But what well, you're talking about, because sometimes the sexual desire is not healthy or sometimes even legal. Sure. Uh, and, right? Completely, completely valid. And the thing is when I'm trying to like interpret this in, in a, in a virtual reality, metaversian kind of concept, trying to understand what is the goals and how do, how do we use uh, virtual reality as uh, the metaverse as a tool to allow this to happen better, easier, faster. Right. And I think all you need is one tweak. The mm -hmm. last part yeah. of the tweak is having doing it how we do it in real life. Having mm -hmm. someone talk to the orb, I love that. I love the drawing idea. Mm -hmm. And then coming back as a small group. 
keeping mm -hmm. a group small and it, having, even if it's a fake, even if it's your fake name, right? Yeah. Having, um, you know, maybe yours is D-Dog, right? I don't know. And, sure. you know, D-Dog is, is talking to me and sharing with me something that I'm in that virtual group. I think that would be just as effective if, mm. if that would accomplish the goal in the same way. Uh, yeah, because I see the group, I could see how the group therapy would be super helpful. And I think it's one of those things, if I was looking at it and trying to reconstruct it again, you could just do the group group therapy communications. I mean, that would totally work. The other one that, that would come up is just exposing yourself to a situation like that um, in virtual reality, and then having you, having having a therapist guide you through what's your mental dialogue going on as you see that. And that could just be taking the drawings, putting inside of a room, adding some sort of ambiance of music or scenery, and then having you walk through it and then having you walk through resisting that situation, right? Same thing where in virtual reality, they do situations where they put you into a bar situation and then you have to resist alcohol. And then, and so that you basically build up, you have this predictive coding, right? Because we are prediction machines. And so you're constantly predicting the situation, right? And so you have your mental, you know, what you're imagining the situation to be, right? And then you have the actual experience. So if you had a way to kind of simulate that in some sort of lo-fi way in VR and, and get that narrative out and then practice resisting that, then that would give you the the mental resilience to be able to actually in real life when you experience something similar you can reflect back on that virtual experience and then say oh i know this here's what i need to say here's what i need to do and here's what i need to do to basically get out of this situation and resist this sexual addiction mm -hmm. so yeah i mean i think it would be i think i could see it um working out differently for like a heroin addict or an alcoholic mm -hmm. I, I think trying it out on sex addicts would be pretty risky. <laughs> <laughs> it's uniquely different, right? Because it's, it's uh, what, what actually, let me ask you that question. What makes it different for the resistance of drug abuse well, and addictions process, of their kind? It's a, it's a process addiction, right? So sex addiction is a process addiction, whereas drugs and alcohol are a chemical addiction. And a process mm -hmm. addiction is you, you can create in your own brain the drug that you want. So you don't, so it's dopamine, right? So you see process addictions with sex, with food, with gambling, with shopping, with hoarding. Um, those all can become process addictions. And so those are going to become a little bit trickier because it, it takes more than just abstinence, right? We have to eat, we have to have sex, we have to buy things. Um, we don't have to necessarily gamble, but some could argue with that on a good football game. Who knows? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it depends who's playing, but you know, we don't have to, you, you can, um, you know, those things you, you have to, to do at some point, um, because it's part of our, our just being human, but nobody has to drink. Nobody has to, you know, sniff up cocaine. Nobody has to do those things. So it's, their treatment is different and the sort of dynamic of it is different, if that makes any sense. Uh, to a degree. So you're saying because one is one is something that you're going to constantly face, right? And then and because it's a habit or it's a it's a process versus a product, right? You can avoid a pro if I don't have any Cheetos in my house, right? If I just get rid of all the food in my house, I'm mm -hmm. never going to have I'm going to remove that temptation versus uh, 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 being in a situation where you're constantly coming around the opposite sex, then it's it's something that is a part of life. And because of that, it's more of a, it's more of a process. Am I understanding that correctly? Cause I'm, I am yeah, having a hard time. I think it's, it, it works out more like even pornography, um, mm. 
thing and things of that nature where we're it's chronic dopamine hit, which can be very addictive and um it becomes more yeah, it becomes a process addiction. So you have to eliminate pornography from someone's life completely if you have a pornography addiction. And if you have um a sexual addiction or a love addiction, yeah, unfortunately, you know, if if, if there's females that have that are love addicts, you know, we can't just get rid of all the males in the world, you know, <laughs> it's not going to be possible or females because they're, you know, not trying to be, um, see, I, I like showed my own bias there. I'm not trying to, to speak just to heterosexual couples for, we just can't get rid of people. You know, we just yeah. can't get rid of people. Yeah. yeah there's the, because there's the cold Turkey, like cutting out smoking, like just stopping that versus you're going to, you're always going to have to eat. You're always going to have to be around right. people. You're always going to have to live. Right. right. So you got to, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta deal with it being a, a way of life, That's right? right? Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. With all of this, with everything that you're doing, putting together uh, the sauna centers and all these places, and writing the books and everything else that you're doing in the space, what's your holy grail for all of this? Like, what is the big purpose? What is the big meaning for you? What is, what is the flag at the top of the mountain look like for you? I, I think about that sometimes. Um, I had, you know, I had gone back to. So I guess I, I'll, I'll say it where I feel today. Um, I don't think I'm ever going to reach the flag in the mountain. Uh, again, to use a mountain analogy, there's always the false summit um, that people get to. And you're like, oh, damn, I think my life is going to be a continual false summit. <laughs> and that's okay. And that's actually good, right? When we stop growing, I mean, we stop living in a way. By, I, I had gone back to uh, I had gone back to school uh, a few years ago for my PhD. And um, unfortunately, it has been an albatross. I have not, uh, I finished my classes right before COVID. I just have not completed my dissertation, which is the the ultimate, the grand finale. Um, and I think even when I, so my, my PhD is sort of shifting gears. It's in counseling supervision. So my goal and what I'm doing now is doing clinical supervision is sort of my next step and not doing as much clinical work myself. So I have more free time to teach and to sort of help new therapists um, sort of pave their own way. I'm really passionate about helping new therapists. I was really lucky when I was an intern um, to get sort of uh, caught up with someone who actually, I, I, who was my supervisor and I still consider him a friend. Or I, I consider him a friend now. And uh, he was just really cool and, and, and helped me sort of took me on and showed me what private practice was like. I was able to start my own private practice because I learned from him. And now I have the treatment center and I really, and we have a team and I really love the team approach. I love working as a, as a team. I don't, I can't imagine being in private practice again and really taking new therapists and helping coaching them and helping them realize, Hey, you can have like a great career and you can do what you love and you don't have to be burnt out. And I could teach you and show you how to do how to have like work-life balance and help people. So my goal next step is not doing as much clinical work with clients myself. Of course, I'm not gonna, if any of my clients hear this, I'm not abandoning anybody. I will, <laughs> I will be there. I'm, they're grandfathered in, I would say. Um, oh, we're not allowed to see, this is where I'm trying to be. We're not allowed to say that word anymore. And I, I don't know another word to use. So um, sorry about that. They're, they're locked in. At I don't yeah, they're locked in as my clients. I'm very territorial, territorial over them anyway. Um, 
but I guess my next step is uh, more clinical supervision mm. and finishing my PhD once and for all. <laughs> uh, well, well, my goal is to graduate this June, so mm. we will see. And I'm going to celebrate uh, graduating this June by hiking up Mount Rainier with my fiance. <laughs> mm, nice. Climbing a new mountain, right? Opening yes, a new chapter. I decided yeah, usually I go abroad, but I'm, I want to keep it in the good old U.S. of A. this time. That's cool. What's cool about that is you look at the hero's journey, right? You, you've gone around the loop. You've gone, and now now you're at the stage of the hero's journey where you're the mentor. And your goal is to set up shop and to mentor other heroes that are climbing up the mountain to go around in the circle so that you can kind of create a path and, and say, these are the lessons that I've learned, and this is the things that I can do, and this is the best way to help um, and expand the impact that you have. And if that is... The Holy Grail, I mean, besides getting a PhD, which is another mountain in and of itself, if that is the Holy Grail for you, which is basically having a mentoring practice and, and shepherding other um, uh, clinical therapists up the mountain, uh, what is the dragon? What is the great challenge that is seemingly so difficult to overcome? You don't know if you can do it. Um, well, right now, the dragon is referred to as the IRB, which is my my... I'm trying to get it passed. Um, it's a board at the university that decides if my research can be done or not. And at this moment, because I'm working with sex addicts as the population, they feel it is a high risk. Mm -hmm. So I am working to restructure uh, my design so I could keep it at a lesser risk and get that dragon, slay that dragon. <laughs> slay that dragon uh that's a that that, that was a pretty big uh obstacle um COVID has been an obstacle yeah uh with uh especially doing hands-on experiential work since now it's virtual but i've i've there's so many tools out there and you know thank goodness for people like you who's taking life to a virtual realm and we can be creative now you know 20 years ago I don't know what would have happened, but now we could still do some experiential work. I do sand tray online now, and I kind of like it better because I don't have to clean up the mess. So <laughs> to be honest, um, so I think that's kind of has been a, a dragon, but I'm hoping it's uh, starting to go back in its cave. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, it definitely shifted reality for everybody. And that IRB, I've I've heard horror stories of that and going through that practice. It's a, it's a process, right? The, mm -hmm. there is a, 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 the, the, the dragon of the red tape is mm -hmm. alive. Well, um, and this, this has been an amazing uh, podcast. Thank you so much, Christy, for coming on. Um, yes, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And did it. yeah, I know, I know we did it. We got there. We made it to the, we made it to the summit. Well, with all of that being said, is there anything else you'd like to let people know about before you tell them how to get a hold of you? Uh, you know, mental health, thank goodness, has, has come into the conversation in our culture, and it's something we can't be ashamed of. Um, you know, if you need help or you think you need help, ask. Mm -hmm. There's always somebody that is willing to help, but yeah. it's that courage, right? It takes courage to do that. So I would say, hold, you know, to anybody that is struggling, be courageous and take a risk and do it with someone safe. Make sure it's a safe person. Love it. Yeah, absolutely. Take that courage step, courageous step forward. Mm -hmm. um, and if people want to get a hold of you or find out more about what you do or how they can find your book, how do they do that? Oh, yeah. 
um, you can go on to um, sonocounseling.com, which is uh, our website. You could find me or any of my, uh, you know, teammates there. They're awesome. Everyone's great. We're all, we work together. Um, you can find the book, Transforming the Addictive Mind, through Sono Press, or you can go on Amazon. Beautiful. Christy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so Yay. much for coming on the show. Uh, cheers to you. Weekend. Yes, absolutely. Yes, listen, I, I, I only drank half of it. Well, <laughs> I barely made the dollar of mine. This was yeah. beautiful. Have a we blessed and beautiful through. weekend. I know. All right, darling. I will see you All on right. the other side. I will see you on the other side. Hang All in. All right. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes Quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or, if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.